Let's begin with prayer. O Lord God, on this glorious evening, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your word and for the wonderful lessons that we are hearing from the Apostle Paul, who looked back to the example of Abraham, and may that example continue to inspire us to greater faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. first thing I'd like to do, of course, is to read the passage for tonight, and that is the fourth chapter of Romans, verses 17 through 25. Listen to the word of God. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me just briefly summarize. Excuse me. I'm afraid I might sneeze for a moment. No? All right. Let me briefly summarize where we've been in chapter 4, Romans 4. Uh, Paul, in this chapter, has been putting forth five arguments that Abraham was justified by faith. Um, He's developed first a theological argument, that was uh, verses 1 through 5. A hermeneutical argument, verses 6 through 8, meaning based on an interpretation of the Bible. An historical argument, verses 9 through 12. And a logical argument, verses 13 through 16. So he's made all those arguments, and now he is moving on to the experiential argument. In other words, the experience of Abraham validates the doctrine, the concept of justification by faith. And now, he wants to make the point, Paul does, that both Abraham and the Christian of his day, and by implication the Christian of this day, experience justification by God in the same way, by faith apart from works. Now, to just give you a very brief historical background, there are a couple of, well, very important doctrines that were cherished in Judaism. In other words, they're not something that Paul came up with, and they're not something that just came on the scene at the time of Jesus. They had a long history before that. And the first doctrine is the power of God to raise the dead to life. And that was indeed a cherished belief of the most ancient Jews, meaning you can find support for that in Deuteronomy 32, 1 Samuel 2.6, and also 
in some of the wisdom literature, meaning sort of the extra-canonical or deuterocanonical books like uh, Tobit and Wisdom. And so what that means is the idea of God raising people from the dead was in considerable dispute among the Jews at the time of Jesus. We know the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. But if we are to look back at the time that Judaism was forming and consolidating as a distinct faith, indeed, the ancient Jews did believe in the power of God to raise the dead. And we need to remember that, too. So Paul, again, is not saying, okay, this is a new religion that I'm talking to you about. We can just cast aside Judaism. No, he isn't doing that. He is building on what people already believed in Judaism and what is contained in the Word of God as it existed at the time of Paul. Because remember, when Paul was writing, the New Testament, as we know it today, certainly didn't exist. But the Old Testament did. So that's one thing, the power of God to raise the dead. And the other thing, the other doctrine, is creation out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo. And that was also a doctrine held in ancient Judaism. The great Jewish um, philosopher, Philo, affirmed that. And there's also mention made, well, if you look at the deuterocanonical books like 2nd Maccabees, 2nd Baruch, um, that's mentioned, but it's also mentioned in Exodus, and Exodus 18 and 21 and 22. And that is most likely alluded to in Romans 17, the whole idea of creation out of nothing. Uh, and so again, we're looking at something that has considerable roots, but Paul is truly developing it as well. He is taking something that already exists and he's bringing it to bear upon the example of Abraham and the example of Christians today. And so let me say a few brief things about some of these specific verses. If we consider verses 17 through 19, there is the language of, excuse me, the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's Abraham. And hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And so this begins... Paul's argument that Abraham and the Christian experience the grace of God in the same way, by justification through faith. Now, the same outline applies to Abraham and the Christian in this passage. Both have the same object of faith, the same source of faith, and the same result of faith. Now, the difference, though, there is a difference between the two, God had promised that Abraham would become the father of many nations. The promise that God gives to the Christian is that we are reckoned righteous before him based on the atoning death of and resurrection, excuse me, of Jesus Christ. I never want to forget that. The death of Christ is vital, but so is the resurrection. You need to have both in order to be justified. And so Romans 17 through 19 presents the object of Abraham's faith, 
the God of the impossible. Abraham believed in the God who was associated with these three miraculous feats. There is physical resurrection, which speaks life into death. Then there was the creation of the world out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, and we've already talked about that a little bit. And, added to that, the procreation of an aged couple. By any natural standard, Abraham and Sarah should not have had children. Abraham was ancient, and Sarah was barren. How could they possibly have children? How could something come out of nothing? And indeed, that's the question that would be asked in all three of those things, about the resurrection, about the creation, and finally about the, well, procreation that Abraham and Sarah were able to enjoy. Now, the key to understanding verses 18 and 19 is to consider the words against all hope. It's a paradoxical statement. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. Now that sounds kind of like double talk. Wait, there's no hope but he believes? Or what? What does that mean? Well, the best way to understand against all hope is to see it in human terms. When we hope for something, we think in human terms. Uh, I don't believe, I mean, we might hope for a successful relationship or a successful job or something that happens in the world. We may, well, we don't hope for things that just seem impossible. At least I don't think we do generally. If there is a married couple in their 80s or 90s, are they very likely to hope for the birth of a child? It's very hard to imagine that. That's because it simply doesn't happen. But against the hope of the world, which is quite limited, Abraham went much further. He had hope because God had made him a promise, a very specific promise. And the divine promise was that he was about to have a child. And because he had that child, he would become the father, the ancestor of many nations. So shall your offspring be. That's first quoted in Genesis 15.5. Now again, from a worldly perspective, that is ludicrous. They couldn't have children. In terms of procreation, their bodies were as good as dead. Think of that. I mean, they were not dead. In other words, Abraham and Sarah were not dead, but that part of their bodies, yeah, that part was dead. But in spite of these daunting odds, these terrifying odds, Abraham believed in the God of the impossible. And this was the divine perspective, therefore, that guided Abraham. He had faith in the promise of God, and his faith never wavered. I mean, that's what's really extraordinary. I think as Christians, we do have faith in God's divine promises. But can we ever, I mean, can we really say that our faith never wavers? Is that possible? But according to this, according to the Bible, according to Paul, Abraham's faith never wavered. And if we look at verses 20 and 21, we see that he did not waver through unbelief in the promises of God. Paul's point is that the promise of God that was given to Abraham is what generated or created his faith. In other words, 
Abraham did not create his own faith. God created the faith in him. God got the faith started in him. And so it is with anybody, really. Um, There's also the wording that Abraham was strengthened in his faith. And so this structure seems to signal that Abraham's faith was generated by God, but also, over time, his faith was strengthened. And doesn't that so well match up what we believe about justification and sanctification? Justification, it comes from God. It is an action of God. It is grace. And that is, of course, the moment that we are conscious of our salvation, conscious of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that. For however many years we live, we are being sanctified. Our faith is being strengthened. We are becoming more and more Christ-like in our attitudes, in our words, and in our deeds. And so Abraham experienced that as well, and Paul is bringing that out. And certainly this language rules out any idea that Abraham's faith was meritorious. It was pure, unmerited grace that came from God. In other words, it's not that God saw Abraham's life and thought, well, this is a good man who needs to be rewarded. Not in that sense, not with salvation. Instead, he gratuitously chose Abraham to be the one who would be the father of the nations of believers. And if we look more closely at verse 22, nonetheless, Abraham... Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And again, this doesn't, believe, this doesn't mean that Abraham was naturally righteous any more than anybody else. But because he had faith, that was credited to him as righteousness. The gift of God led to another gift of God. And so it is with Christians today, if we have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that is credited to us as righteousness. We are therefore found righteous before God even though we can't create that righteousness. But in terms that we can understand as Christians, the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins, and so we stand before God as if we are perfectly righteous and pure and holy. What an incredible gift that is. And verses 23 and 25, to just briefly talk about them a little bit, Those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. And so again, the Christian experiences justification in the same way that Abraham did, by faith apart from works. The object of the Christian's faith is the God of the impossible. Now in this case, that means the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Because look, if you're dead, you're dead. Especially if you've been in the tomb over a period of three days, parts of three days. There's no mistaking it. You are dead. You're not in a swoon. You're not in a coma. None of the excuses that people come up with to try to disprove the resurrection. No, no, you are dead as a doornail. And yet God brought back our Lord Jesus from the dead. He did the impossible. 
And similarly, similarly, if we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if we accept His death and resurrection, we benefit from that. And this is the great thing. You see, I mean, we're all here, we're all alive physically, but before we are justified, even if we are alive physically, we are spiritually dead. It is solely God who awakes us, who brings us back to spiritual life. And again, it is impossible. I mean, what in the world can do that? There's been no scientific discovery made. There's no medicine that can quicken a dead spirit or soul. It is purely a gift of grace from God, something that is impossible in the terms of the world. But again, with God, all things are possible, as Jesus himself said. And so over and over again, Paul is returning to the message that faith is the key. That's something that covers, well, it's especially emphasized in Romans, but I think it appears in all of his letters. And not just in Paul's letters, but it is a constant throughout the New Testament and indeed even in the Old Testament. Abraham, the example of Abraham shows that. And so again, let's just reiterate about the God of the impossible, we look back to the creation and consider that from the biblical perspective. And not everybody does. But it turns out there are two possibilities about creation. One is that God is eternal or that matter is eternal. Those are the only two options, actually. Now, in the past, there have been scientists and philosophers who have argued that matter was eternal. And in fact, I guess there are still some today who do. In other words, matter has simply existed forever and ever. And therefore, you know, you don't really need God. Or maybe you need God to superintend creation to sort of bring things together. I think it's just at least an unexplainable paradox to me how you could have matter existing eternally absent God's creative action. That is what some people believe, though. But here's the thing, nowadays, for a number of years actually, even the most atheistic scientists believe in the Big Bang Theory, which means there was a definite beginning to the universe. Before the Big Bang, there was, well, just about nothing. I suppose there was supposed to be some kind of particle that was so small it couldn't be measured, and it contained everything in it, and then it just exploded and made the universe. And so even from a secular or atheistic perspective, the universe has a definite beginning. And for the Christian, of course, and not just the Christian, but especially, I think, the Christian, we understand God as bringing everything out of nothing. Again, the God of the impossible. And that's an incredible miracle. And that's the first miracle that God performed. And the second miracle we can consider has to do with Abraham and Sarah. If we can, well, I don't know if it's possible for us to appreciate the faith of Abraham and Sarah in the matter of having offspring, but one example I was given is that if a 100-year-old husband and his 90-year-old wife were so confident that God would give them a natural-born son, 
that they brought a home beside an elementary school to prepare for his arrival. That is one way to consider the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And again, impossible by the standards of the world, but certainly possible through the God of the impossible. And then the third miracle we can consider is the resurrection. That's what God did for Jesus. His body was dead and buried, as we said, but God spoke the word, that's all he had to do, and raised his son to life. And praise God for that. And so the fourth miracle, as I've gone over, is justification, where our spiritually dead selves are made alive again by the gracious action of God. So those are the four miracles that are brought up in this short passage. I'd like to conclude by offering you a short quote from Calvin that I think sums up the message very well. And quote, uh, to quote Calvin, as he said, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. But outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. So let us truly try to leave ourselves behind and our concepts of the world and what is possible or impossible by the standards of our mortal existence and believe that God is true, that his word is true, that his promises are true, and we will inherit the promise again by grace through faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.